Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we are joined by the Charlene Madden. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day to you. Good morning. <laughs> we're, we're transatlantic <laughs> again today, so it's uh, we're seven hours apart in different time zones, so it's always a pleasure to have different people on. So great to have you on, Charlene. So um, just for our listeners today, so Charlene Madden has admittedly spent most of her life living in a state of darkness. After experiencing over nine years of sexualized trauma at the hands of her grandfather, a decade of domestic violence, and three plus decades of mental illness and suicidal ideology. She has she was just two days away from taking her life when she attended a woman's workshop where everything changed. She was able to take off her blinders, begin the healing process, and find her purpose by turning her mess into a message of hope, evolution, and transformation that she now shares with people all over the world. Charlene is a mother of three amazing children, a wife, daughter, Recce practitioner, women's empowerment coach, and proud Toronto Maples Leafs fan. Almost 30 years in the food and beverage industry, Charlene made a shift and now works in a mining office, which allows her more time to follow her passion of creating uh, platforms of healing for other women and men who have shared similar experiences and who are ready to make a shift in their own lives. Charlene, that's quite a story, quite a background. That's a a mouthful. Yeah, that's indeed. Listen, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing. So first thing I'm going to ask is what is your fire in your belly? It is to save people from having to spend as many years in the darkness as I did. Um, I look at the pain and suffering that I went through for so many years and if I can save someone from one day of having to sit in that darkness, that's what gets me up. That's what fires me up. That's what keeps me going every day. So that's the, it's the fire in my belly. So it's almost to be of service to other people. If I'm reading that correctly to, to really. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and what, what stage are you at in your life now, Charlene, if I can ask, I mean, is this something that's all behind you and you've been able to deal with, or is it going to always be an ongoing process? Well, I tell everyone, you know, mental health is like diabetes, right? It's something that you're going to live with for the rest of your life. It's not something that, you know, you just all of a sudden one day go, Hey, I'm better, you know, cause I, I am better. I'm not, um, I don't suffer as bad as I used to, but that's by doing the work and learning, um, to listen to my body, to slow down and to, to take care of myself, which I didn't for so many years. So it's definitely not something that ever leaves you. You just learn how to deal with it in healthier ways. But generally, uh, my life is 100% different than it was just six years ago. And uh, and that's why I'm, I'm so passionate about sharing what helped me get there with other people. So that's, I mean, that's quite a shift. So, I mean, six years ago is really when the, the, the transformation, the change happened for you. I mean, can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah. I mean, as you read in my bio six years ago, I was just two days away from ending my life. I mean, when I showed up to that women's workshop, I had my hunting rifle in the backseat of my car and I had planned to, you know, I showed up on a Saturday and Monday morning, I was going to shoot myself. I was driving up into the mountains and, and I was going to end my life. So it was, uh, I was very close and I had been on, you know, teetering on the edge for, for a while. And I just felt that I was, I was out of hope at that point for myself. So it, uh, you know, that's how quickly life can change. Things can shift in just a blink of an eye. One moment can change your life. And that's what that workshop was for me. So it just kind of set me on a path of uh, realizing that I wasn't alone and that I could take everything I had experienced and uh, and just flip it into instead of being, you know, this painful situation, which it was, that I could shift it into a purpose of of helping other people. So, Wow. And, and for you, was that really your darkest hour? Do you think that was your lowest moment? Uh, huh. actually, you know what? I don't know if I would say it was my darkest moment because it was probably one of the moments I felt the most peaceful in my life, as strange as that sounds, because I had finally, I had made the decision. So once I made the decision, everything seemed to get really quiet inside that internal struggle and battle of life and death that I had felt like I had been fighting for so long, that fight was over. And I think I was very resigned and at peace with the decision that I had made. So I wouldn't say it was um, my darkest moment, um, but I had had a few leading up to it that led me to that point. So isn't it funny? Because I mean, I've heard people say before, you know, it's almost that that the darkest hour and in, in the bit that they realize that there's no more, you know, that as, as you say, they almost run out of everything it also becomes their brightest moment you know it's yeah. that it's that transition of saying listen all bets are off right it's just like mm-hmm. it's different now we've you know you either accepted or you've gone through or you just this transition process has happened now yeah. you know mm-hmm. what i mean for you what are the lessons that you've learned and, and really when did it all start for you the transition to where i'm at now yeah, well, I'm ex- your original journey. I mean, when when did you sort of stop being yourself as such? I mean, when when did all this start coming into your life? Well, I was three and a half when, um, like, when I look at really when my story started. You know, back when I was three and a half, um, my parents had a really dysfunctional marriage. Uh, my dad was a very severe alcoholic, and um, he was violent when he drank. And um, I had two half brothers that were twins that were eight years older than myself. And um, because they weren't biologically his, when my dad drank, they were usually the target of his violence. And um, when my mom got to the point where she knew if she didn't leave, chances are my dad was gonna probably kill one of my brothers in a drunken rage. Uh, she made a decision to, to leave the marriage, wanted to take all of us. And of course my dad said, no, you can take the boys, but you can't take my daughters. So she made a really difficult decision. Do I stay? Do I go? And she made the decision to le- to leave, um, which probably in the long run saved my brother's lives. Um, 
And of course, my dad being such a bad alcoholic, he couldn't raise two little girls. I had an older sister, four years older than me. So three and a half and seven with a severe alcoholic, it's not uh, a good recipe for success for him. And uh, he contacted my grandparents and asked if they would take us in. Um, and my grandmother didn't skip a beat. She said, absolutely, we will take them in. And uh, my grandmother, to me, was the light, absolute light of my life. She was strong, uh, taught us to be, you know, strong and independent, uh, work hard, you know, all these great work ethics that that she taught me. And I probably learned some of them too well. Um, and she was just absolutely, absolutely amazing. She was the mom that I didn't have growing up. And um, as wonderful as she was, though, my grandfather was a pedophile. So it was kind of this yin and yang of, you know, good and good and evil, really, in my childhood. You know, I loved her and couldn't imagine not living with her, but, you know, dreaded the fact of being in the same household with my grandfather. So it uh, so really my my journey started at uh, at that young age and just continued. I mean, we went through nine years of sexual abuse and uh my grandfather was definitely a predator of convenience. My grandmother um, gave to everyone else, but she took one night a week kind of for herself. And uh, Monday night was bingo night in town. So she would, you know, toodle off seven o'clock at night. She'd make sure we were, you know, fed and bathed and tucked into bed, you know, with the TV or a book and off she would drive. And my sister and I shared a bedroom. We would, we would sit there and listen to her car drive away with this sickening fear because we knew when her car was when we couldn't hear her car anymore that we would be sitting there listening for my grandfather's footsteps on the stairs because he would as soon as she was gone that was when he would come up and the abuse would happen so it was almost you know almost weekly for those nine years so and uh, it just created such chaos, of course, in, in our young lives. So, and of course we didn't say anything or I didn't say anything at the time, I think, because I was uh, terrified of losing the only family that I knew. And my grandmother had been that pillar for me. So I was afraid that if I said something, I would be taken away from her. And that was my biggest fear at the time. So. Is your sister older than you or younger than you? Or? Yeah. She's four years older than, than I was. So she was seven and a half. So she actually unfortunately experienced the worst of um, the trauma. I mean, as she got older, um, rape started happening. And, uh, and you know, when she became a teenager, she wanted to leave desperately. She wanted to run away, but she knew that if she left, then his full attention would be placed on me. So she stayed and endured the trauma as a way of protecting me. So, yeah, difficult, difficult decision for a child to have to make. So a horrible decision, right? It's just, it's, yeah. it's just uh, horrific. It's something, it's almost a, a parent's or a child's worst nightmare, really, isn't it? Mm -hmm. What, yeah. um, I mean, that, and that's such a difficult situation for you. It's almost in between, you know, sort of, you know, one part of your grandparents that love you and the other part is, 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 you know, abusing you and, and, and more. And it's, 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 as you say, it's that yin and yang. It's crazy, right? Mm -hmm. I couldn't even write it. Mm -hmm. So how, yeah. how did it start to come to light then? I mean, how did it all start to really sort of... My sister, when she was 16, basically went to school and had a nervous breakdown. 
she um, was actually terrified that she was going to become impregnated by my grandfather. And, um, and as I said, she wanted to leave, but she didn't want to leave me there. So she just basically went to school, had a meltdown and, you know, everything came out. You know, I remember uh, my grandma always picked me up after school and my sister was in high school at the time. I was still in public school. Uh, you know, she picked me up and, and brought me home and, you know, we thought it was strange that my sister wasn't home. My grandfather was out in his wood shop working away. And and then my grandmother gets a call from the police station and they're like, you know, you're, we have your granddaughter. We need you to come down to the police station. And of course, my grandmother's angry because she thinks my sister got into some kind of trouble. And uh, so off she went to the police station and she gets there and they're like, well, where's your other granddaughter? And she's like, well, she's at home. And they're like, is your husband there? And she's like, yes. And they're like, you need to go get your granddaughter now and bring her here. And of course, my grandmother's completely confused, not knowing what's going on. So she came and picked me up and, you know, we went into, you know, the police station. And uh, that's when it all came to light that my sister, you know, had told the school counselors and they had contacted the police. And so I'm sitting there with police officers and social workers as everything is finally coming out after nine years. So. That's it's quite the change, really, isn't it? I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, to to suddenly for it to have been held silent and all that grief and trauma and everything else, and suddenly for it to be released, uh, you mm-hmm. know, how yeah. was that for you? Scary, you know, because there was so much um, uncertainty going on. You know, my grandmother, of course, was angry, upset, you know, all these gamuts of emotion that she was experiencing. Um, you know, I, I didn't know what my future held. Like, was I going to be taken away from my grandmother? What was going to happen? What was our life going to look like? And I mean, I had already had no sense of real security. I mean, yes, I had my grandmother, but I had this fear of, you know, this lack of security, probably because everything just felt so chaotic all the time in my life that I just wasn't sure what my future was going to hold. And I'm 12 and a half when this is, when this is all coming out. So, you know, and I remember sitting, you know, across the the table from a social worker and um, having her say, you know, after sharing my story and, and, you know, even sitting there with the social worker, not telling the full story because of shame and fear and, you know, like trying to almost downplay some of what had happened and, you know, having her kind of get up and walk around the table and pat me on the shoulder and just say, Hey, Charlene, I want you to know everything is going to be okay. And I mean, at 12 and a half, I'm thinking, I don't even know what okay looks like at this point in my life. Like, what is that supposed to mean? Like, what is okay? Even at 12, I recognized that I had really never felt okay in my life. So I didn't know what that was supposed to look like. So it was a, it was a scary time. So. Uh, I mean, for you, I mean, was everything else normal in your life? I mean, I know that sounds a bit bizarre, but I mean, you know, as a kid, you were going to school, everything else, you know, on the surface. Yeah. yeah I mean, we, we grew up in a, a smaller town. There's 2,500 people in the town that we grew up. So it was like kind of, you know, other than, you know, other than the abuse, it felt like my childhood was, you know, ideal, you know, growing up, you know, with my grandparents, you know, like this is back in the, 
you know, seventies and eighties. Right. So it was like, you know, you could play in all the neighbor's backyards. You, you know, you, like they say, you ride your bike until it starts to get dark. You know, it was, I had cousins that lived in town that I was super close with. So, you know, we were always outside, always playing. Now I think part of me was outside was safe for me. You know, I was out of sight, out of mind. I thought, you know, being outside, but you know, otherwise life felt really normal except for that one night a week. So. Gosh, it's, um, it's quite something. Well, what did, what did you want to be when you grew up? What was your, your plans back then? I wanted to be a reporter. I, uh, I always, I always enjoyed writing and, um, I think part of it for me was being able to writing gave me a voice that I felt I didn't have as a child. And I always cared about other people. Um, I always wanted to share other people's stories and give them voice probably because I was projecting myself on, onto them, not having a voice as a child. So, but um, I always loved to write. I remember, I think it was in grade five my grandmother brought bought me a typewriter and I was just so happy it was like every school project from like grade five on was done on a typewriter and I would just sit for hours practicing and just imagining myself touring the world and being able to to write and to go to all these you know war-torn countries and places where you know kids were hurt and kids were suffering and give them a voice so it uh, so writing has always been a passion in my life so it's interesting. I mean, that was sort of almost seen as a method of communication, an outlet for, do you think that was triggered by your own experiences or what was going mm-hmm. on? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I remember, you know, writing some of the stories that I wrote as a child, when I look back on it now, um, they were very, you know, based on the experiences that I had had as a child. Um like I think my first, the first story I remember, and I don't know when I wrote it, it must've been really young, probably grade two or grade three. was a, a story about a baby horse and a mama horse and the baby horse lost her mom. And the, you know, the story was called, do you know where my mom is? Right. And, you know, looking back on it now, I'm thinking, wow, this was a child who was really projecting the pain that she'd already experienced as a child into story. And, you know, of course, I don't know whether the te- teachers recognized it back then as being something. But for me, that was, you know, me putting my life and my struggles out onto paper at the age of six and seven. So. I mean, it, it's, it's it, like, say you look back and I mean, how obvious do you think it was? Or do you just think it wasn't? Or do you think it was maybe the people weren't as observant at that time? Yeah, I don't know whether it was obvious and it just wasn't acknowledged or whether it just, you know, people weren't weren't looking for it. Because, I mean, even when I went into high school and was struggling with with my mental health struggles, you know, being becoming suicidal and, you know, and sitting with a guidance counselor and then a school psychologist. And even after all the, the childhood trauma I had experienced, you know, it, after four hours of, of questionnaires and talking, they diagnosed me as bipolar or manic depressive at, at the age of 15, instead of going, okay, maybe this child's just suffering from PTSD and the trauma that she's experienced, you know, instead of, because I, you know, that's what I think the issue was. Um, it was just easier to just label it as being something else rather than dealing with what the real heart of the the issue was. So, 
because after the abuse came out, there was no counseling, there was no therapy, there was no follow-up. And I think a lot of that was my grandmother's old school mentality of just put your head down, you know, life happens, let's just get through it and, you know, move on. So I think that was a pattern that I kind of learned a little too well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's easy to apply sort of current day sort of standards, expectations, everything to it. But I mean, yeah, you don't have to go back too far and just life is just different. You know, you used to mm. smoke on airplanes, you, you know, you live around without a seatbelt. There's a whole lot of stuff that, that when I'm not, and I'm not for one second condoning it. It's just that aspect of life was very different, you know? And oh, absolutely. Yeah. As you say, it's, um, my grandmother used to have a saying saying you never say ill of a dead or a priest. And it's like, well, actually in, in where they grew up, it's, it's the priest they should have been saying ill of, you know, it was just yeah. one of those circumstances, you know, yeah. for you then. So you, you went through school and, and, you know, college and, and what, what sort of happened for you then, Charlene, what was your, your steps? Well, once I got through high school, all I could think of really was I wanted to move away, right? Like I just wanted to get away from where I was because I felt if I changed geographical locations, everything would be better in my life. Not really recognizing that I was the problem. It wasn't where I was. I was the problem as in the trauma, the unhealed, unresolved trauma was within me. So it didn't matter where I went, there I was, I was always going to be there. Were you talking about it? I mean, was, was it something that was, you were able to communicate or was it just a shutdown or didn't understand it? It just wasn't, it wasn't dealt with. It wasn't talked about, you know, like it was not um, like, I remember having brief discussions with my mom after the abuse came out. um, Cause I would see my mom in her, you know, intermittently, intermittently, I can't even say that word this morning. Um, Throughout my childhood, she, I mean, she had moved across the country. So I would see her like every five to six months, she would pop in for a visit. And, um, and after the abuse came out, uh, we learned that my mom had actually experienced the same trauma at the hands of her dad. So I had a lot of anger at my mom for, of course, allowing us to go live with her dad, who she knew was a child molester and rapist. And, um, I actually probably had more anger directed at my mom than I did my grandfather for some strange reason. But, um, you know, I, I just kind of moved on and even then it was, it was a brief conversation about what had happened. And then that was it. It kind of wasn't discussed. It wasn't brought up. It was just, you know, we try to pretend that this has not happened. So I think I kind of tried to bury that within myself as well. And then moving out, you know, I left high school, moved away to a bigger city and, you know, I moved away with my high school sweetheart and, um, we thought, okay, in my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to create, uh, this perfect life that I didn't have, you know, the white picket fence, all that great stuff. I'm going to have kids and I'm going to be a fantastic mom. I'm going to have a happy marriage. All these thoughts that I had in my mind that I desperately wanted, but didn't have the skills or the tools to, to even accomplish. I mean, I had my first, I got pregnant when I was 20. We decided we were going to have kids younger because um, we wanted the freedom 45 plan, you know, 45, your kids are all gone. Now you can live your life. And um, so I had my first daughter at 21. I had my second daughter at 25 and I had my son at 27. So here I am, I have three kids, you know, I'm in my twenties. I'm 
drinking heavily, which was something that I developed as a coping mechanism in high school to deal with the pain because it, I was either um, drinking, smoking marijuana, uh, cutting, or writing. Those are my four coping mechanisms at the time through school. And of course, once I left uh, school and you know moved away, the drinking continued to be the the coping mechanism. So as great of a mom as I wanted to be, I didn't have those skills or tools to be a good mom. I, I worked, um, I was a working mom. My husband eventually became, well, he be eventually became my husband, um, didn't maintain employment very well. So I, uh, I worked a lot all the time I was, I was gone. And, um, it was difficult to connect with my kids. I struggled immensely to connect with my daughters. Um, I think because when I had an, a physical connection with them, you know, like you, your child gets hurt and you pick them up and cuddle them to most people. That's normal to me. It felt strange. It felt almost wrong. You know, it, uh, it would always set off these little alarm bells in my head of like, is this wrong? you know, even the simplest of, of actions. So it was very difficult. I had my son, none of that, you know, I was, I was very easily able to connect with my son, but my daughters I struggled with. So as I'm struggling, um, of course, my marriage is struggling and I'm sinking deeper and deeper into depression because I'm feeling the shame of not being able to fulfill my wants and goals of being this great mom. And I know I'm failing at it. And as I'm recognizing that the depression is sinking in deeper and deeper and deeper, and I start contemplating suicide. And I remember sitting down at the age of 28 with my husband and saying, um, I think I need to leave the house. Um, I'm contemplating suicide. I was planning on hanging myself in, in my house in my entryway. And I knew it would be my kids that would find me. And that terrified me. And, you know, so I said, I'm not fit to take care of myself right now, let alone three little kids. I need a break so I can try to get myself together. And of course, as I was saying, my marriage was basically over anyway. So he was like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. See you later. And uh, and I moved out and um, I actually moved in with my mother-in-law at the time and thought, OK, I'm going to take some time to really get myself together. But all leaving did was just sent me down a spiral of shame, guilt, all those emotions, because here I just done the same thing that my parents had done. I had abandoned my children. Um, I was like my dad, I was letting alcohol control my ability to parent and be a good parent. So I had just repeated the cycle that I had so desperately wanted to break. And here I was just doing it again. So I, uh, yeah, I struggled and, and uh, it was shortly after leaving, it was about a month after I left my husband that I jumped into another relationship that was as toxic as I was inside. So it just created a whole nother decade of dysfunction. So isn't it? I'm sure in hindsight, looking back, I mean, you're able to signpost or you're able to spot almost that in yourself. I mean, how how typical is it? Do you think that behavior uh, and understandable? By the way, I don't think it's it's. 
uh, I think it's too typical. And that's the, that's the unfortunate part. I mean, unhealed trauma has such an impact on our lives. And I mean, sometimes we don't even, the things that are happening, we don't even relate to it because it seems so far off from, from what we've experienced, but, um, you know, trauma will impact every single area of your life. So, you know, for me, it was, uh, it was difficult and, you know, I leaving my marriage and then getting into this dysfunctional relationship. And I mean, I, I, you know, I always say like attracts like, so, I mean, I got with someone who was as dysfunctional as I was, he was an alcoholic. He had experienced his own childhood trauma, which created, um, anger within him. So, I mean, he started, um, being violent, you know, I started experiencing the domestic violence very quickly in the relationship. And I think the problem was at the time it fit the narrative of what I thought I deserved. You know, I had such shame and guilt for leaving my, my children that I almost felt like, Oh, this is my karma. This is what the universe is giving me as payback for being a bad mom, you know? So, and then when the abuse happened, it seemed normal you know, like abuse had become, had been such a prominent part of my life and yes, not physical abuse, but just abuse in general that, you know, I had such poor self-esteem that I felt that that's just what I deserved in life. Like maybe this is what my life is always going to be like. Maybe this is all I deserve is to be treated poorly. And those were just the messages that I just kept replaying over and over and over. So, and once you get stuck in that loop, it's hard to get out. I say, and I don't think everyone sort of realizes that it's almost, as you say, that's for some people, you know, if there's a raised voice in the house, that's exceptional. But for some people, that's just, that's normal. That's in fact, that's the the way you talk, isn't it? That you yell at each other or, you know, if there's a violent partner or something else, it's like, that's normalized. And so people mm-hmm. then are sort of attracted back to that and kind of going, well, this is all I've ever known. Therefore, this must be the right thing. Right. So right. does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I don't have any memories of my life before my grandparents. Like, I don't remember my childhood or anything like that, probably because I was so young. But, you know, I wonder how much of that imprinted, you know, the the violence from my dad and the arguing and the fighting, you know, how much was already anchored in there that just, you know, made it feel normal because it wasn't normal and nothing about that relationship was normal. So... Yeah, it's that sort of, it is that knowing or that sort of how much of this has been, has, you know, you as the child at that time, you know, you as sort of the, the pre-seven or whichever sort of times mm-hmm. we are extremely influenced, influenced by our surroundings. You know, it's, um, uh, do, do you ever remember being normal as such? Uh, I mean, I say, and I say, that's maybe a, a sort of a weird thing to say, but do, do you ever remember not having these things going on around you? Or is it has just always been there, as you say? Yeah, as a child and in my early life, I mean, I'm feeling, well, yeah, I guess I don't even know what normal is. I guess that would be my, my thing. Cause you know, I would say I feel normal now, but I actually don't feel normal because I think normal is just to, Sometimes I think normal is just to go through the life and and put your head down and just ignore everything that is happening. I think that was I think that was the normal back then was just not to acknowledge anything and just to pretend like everything was okay. Um, 
now I, you know, as, as fantastic as my life is, I still feel like my life isn't normal because I have such a passion and purpose within me that I look around and I go, I'm pretty abnormal in that aspect because I want to create such change in the world. So, but as a child, I think everything just felt normal. So. It's maybe a bit of a strange question, but do you sort of, do you believe that not that it had to happen, but actually that that was, you know, that sort of was always going to happen in your life to to sort of facilitate or be a catalyst to let you become what you're supposed to become. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I had a lot of people that have asked me if I, you know, if you could go back and change things, would you change it? And as tra- trauma filled as my life was, I wouldn't change anything. Hmm. Not not a second of it, because every single thing that happened created who I am now. And I love the person that I am now. And if any single one of those dominoes was out of place, then everything wouldn't have fallen into where it is now. I, you know, people talk about regrets and I really don't have any regrets. I mean, I, um, I chose some paths down in my life that, um, I maybe wish I would have gone a different direction. Um, but my only regrets I have are, of course, is that my children suffered emotionally because of the state that I was in. That is the only regret I have in my life. If I could have saved my children from having to experience any of the pain and heartache, then I would. But I also know it's created the people that they are today as well. So, yeah, but it's hard because because you also weren't acting as your true self either. So oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I remember sitting in, um, my oldest daughter suffer has suffered from mental illness as well. And I remember sitting in a social worker's office that had such a flashback feel to me. Um, and my daughter being so angry at me about, you know, the choices I had made in my life and how it had negatively affected her and everything she was saying was absolutely true. And I remember sitting there feeling so judged by this room of people, social workers who had no understanding of what I had gone through in my own life. And I remember just looking at her and kind of feeling, having this feeling of peace come over me and just going, you know what? I did the best I could with the tools that I had. Mm. And it was in that moment that I felt like I gave myself grace for the first time, you know, because I had so much guilt over what I, I had done and the choices I had made. But I recognized that given what I had gone through, I really was doing the best that I could. And I walked out of that appointment and it was kind of an epiphany moment for me because I went, you know what, if I'm giving myself this grace, then I need to give this grace to everyone else in my life. Everyone who has touched my life. I looked at my mom and went, okay, you know, like knowing what my mom went through as a child, she did the best she could with the tools that she had. You know, my dad being an alcoholic and growing up in, you know, in a family that was, you know, could be violent at times. Um, he did the best he could. You know, my grandmother did the best she could. And even going so far as to give that grace to my grandfather, which is hard for a lot of people. But I said, you know, I don't know what went on in his childhood to create the man that he was. But I'm going to give him that grace, not for him. I'm giving that grace for me. And it was so freeing. It was such a healing moment. So I, I can't underestimate how big a point that is. I think for so many people, it's, 
because often I'd ask the people and saying, oh, that, you know, somebody has hurt them and something has happened. And if you ask them then saying, well, do you know what went on in their lives? You know, because people just think that this, you know, this is a sudden occurrence. This has just happened. Mm-hmm. It's like 99 times out of 100 is because potentially the pattern behavior that they are, they were used to or something happened to them and generally hurt people, hurt people, you know, and that's, Absolutely. unfortunately it's, and I'm not saying it's right for one second, but it's, it gives a lot of, another level of dimension and saying, I'll never forgive them. But as you say, and I think that's such a huge point, you know, is to say, actually, do you know what? It's understanding that they possibly had a horrific life as well and things that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I think it's just refreshing. I think it, for many people, it, it almost takes away or it just puts another dimension on it that it's not almost against them. Mm-hmm. Not all. And I, you know, I always say, cause I mean, like people, forgiveness is a really touchy word for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I don't condone any of the behaviors that were done at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and would I say that I've forgiven I don't know that I would say necessarily I've forgiven to me, giving grace and, and, you know, forgiveness are two different things, but I've definitely forgiven my mom for sure. Um, but I, you know, I always heard that analogy that, you know, like not forgiving is like drinking poison yourself and expecting the other person to die. Right. Like we've heard that it's you forgiveness is you do that for you, not for them. I mean, my grandfather was long past when I gave, you know, that grace in my life. So, you know, he has no idea. And I never spoke to my grandfather, you know, from the day he was arrested. I never, you know, never spoke to him after that. Right. So, um, you know, I did that for, for me. And I think that's important for people to just, if they can release any of that, because holding it is just doing you more harm than, than it is them. It's, um, I had a guest on, uh, perhaps a year, year and a half ago, and they had had a traumatic uh, sexual uh, assault at the age of seven, and it took them to the age of fifty to even, you know, sort of be okay with it. And they had tried every coping mechanism from, as you said at the very start, alcohol, drugs, abuse, any number of things to try and feel normal. And it wasn't really till she was just she's 49 and 50 years of age that she actually broke down and it all started coming out. But again, asking her saying, what would you change? And says for the way I feel now, I had to do it. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so foreign, but also so beautiful all at the same, same time, you know, obviously not for the experience, but actually because it's, it's facilitated her to be the person that she can and the service and, you know, the purpose that she can give to her life and those around her. Absolutely. And it's, yeah. um, it's phenomenal. What take us forward then? I mean, really, so you had this, you know, going through and, you, you know, getting, sorting your, your own self out in these relationships. What, what happened after that? Um, well, the, the abusive relationship that I was in that lasted, um, we were together for 13 and a half years. So it was a long time of abuse. And I had actually at one point, um, had a failed suicide attempt and, uh, I tried to overdose on pills after a violent night. Um, and it was after, you know, I actually, I actually sat down to write my goodbye letter to my children after I took every single sleeping pill and pain pill that I had in the house. And, um, 
sitting and writing those letters to my kids. And I was like, no, I can't do this. This is, you know, the most ultimate way to abandon my kids if I do this. So I went to the emergency room and I actually collapsed in the emergency room and woke up with tubes down my throat. Um, And, you know, my ex-partner who just hours before had almost, you know, choked me to death. Um, sitting in the chair crying beside me saying how sorry he was and uh, when I got discharged from the hospital my mom reached out to me and said hey I think you need to move across the country come out here Uh, we'll help you get on your feet bring the kids you know we'll help you get your life turned around and of course this fit into my pattern of sure I'll just change locations and everything will be fantastic but of course that doesn't happen so but I moved across the country six months later my partner followed me out with the uh, statement of how much he missed me how sorry he was how much he loved me and of course I sucked right into that because I so desperately wanted someone to love me um, because I didn't love myself that I was willing to you know continue the relationship so he moved out and that was 10 more years of abuse until he came home one day and said he was moving out. And I completely felt betrayed. I mean, as great as it should have been, I thought, wow, you know, like I've, you've abused me for 13 years and now you're just, you know, kicking me to the curb. It, it was, yeah, I had so many emotions, but I thought, okay, now's the time to, to get our lives together. And, uh, For two and a half months, I was doing really good. I was on the path to, you know, I had a great support group of women around. And, uh, you know, I remember on a Tuesday morning, he, my ex-partner reached out and wanted to get together and talk. And I was like, no, I'm done. You know, you've moved on with life. You'd actually moved right in with some, another woman. So I said, you've moved on. I need to move on with my life. I'm just starting to feel okay. And, uh, and he goes, okay, well, I just want to say, I'm sorry how things ended. And I was like, you know what? Things end the way they're supposed to end. You know, I was trying to be so philosophical in the moment. It's like, no, no, this is how it's supposed to be. And, uh, and that was it. And then two days later, I had a police officer walk into my place of work, uh, took me outside. He knew where to find me because he'd been involved in one of our domestic disputes prior um, and informed me that my ex-partner had shot and killed himself. And I was absolutely crushed. Um, I felt partly responsible because I thought maybe if I would have talked to him, it wouldn't have happened. Um, I knew I was probably the only person who knew um, the mental health struggles that he had been experiencing. Um, And I had always said uh, we were very codependent in our mental illness because when I was down, he was up. And when he was down, I was up. And I always said, thank God we were never in the same low spot at the same time, because it probably would have been both of us. Um, So I had so many feelings going on at that moment. Number one, I had to go tell my children that their stepdad of 13 and a half years had taken his life. And uh, again, talking about, you know, regrets with my children. um, I was so wrapped up in my own grief at that time that I just kind of set them out to sail by themselves. I didn't, you know, I wasn't there emotionally the way I needed to be for them. And, uh, and that's one of my greatest regrets that I have is that they went through that on their own. And um, so I tried to, you know, keep like, do what my grandma said. I just kept my head down and pretended that I was okay. Not many people 
were aware of any of the struggles that I was going through because, you know, I had this persona of, you know, being this rough, tough person who had it all together. And uh, meanwhile, I was just kind of crumbling inside. And I remember two weeks after his death, sitting with a good friend of mine, and I said, I am so angry right now. And she's like, well, of course, anger is one of the stages of grief. And I was like, no, I'm not angry. He's dead. I'm angry. He did it first. And she was like, okay, you know, and that's a you know hard concept for people to grasp. But inside, I'm thinking, I've just had to witness the pain and the heartache that everyone has had to endure because he ended his life. I've seen all the pieces that people have to pick up. And here I am. I want to end my life so bad. How do I do that? Like it was this battle of good and evil. You know, it's like, I don't want to be here, but I don't want to hurt anybody, you know? And it was, it was such an emotional struggle. And I was, you know, just trying to, to get through life, pretending that I was okay. And, you know, and I, I remember having, you know, a really bad evening where I was sitting on my bathroom floor and this is probably, you know, you talk when we talked about the darkest moments, this is probably one of the darkest moments um, was I'm sitting on my bathroom floor and I've got painkillers in one hand. And because uh, I had a chronic pain, I had developed fibromyalgia because of the trauma. And of course, you know, that's painkillers are great for that. And, um, so I've got painkillers in one hand and I've got my gun cabinet key in the other hand. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm tired of hurting. I'm tired of being in pain and I'm tired of trying to hold it together for everyone else. When I feel like I'm falling apart inside and I was trying to decide which would be the best way, you know, and all I could think of was that my son was two floors down sleeping in his bed and he would be the one that would find me regardless. And, um, so again, that moment of I can't do it because of my children, um, I just grabbed a, a knife and I started cutting my legs. And I remember looking down at the floor and there's, you know, blood is starting to, you know, puddle on the floor. And I'm like, I can't, you know, something's got to change. Like this is, I'm at a breaking point where I'm going to topple over the edge or I need to try to get help. And, uh, and I thought, okay, so the next morning I got up and I contacted mental health and got in to see a psychiatrist and uh, thought that that would be the um, that would be the fix that I needed. And uh, shortly after my appointment, like my first appointment, um, I received notification that I was getting a life insurance policy for my ex-partner's passing. So again, the guilt is kicking in of I've just, you know, received money because of this, right? And I'm thinking, okay, well, it's a chance to start a new life for my kids, put money away for college and, you know, get a house and, and all of this. And while I'm thinking about all of this, all I'm thinking about is that, you know, my son is going into grade 11 at the time. Um, he's only going to be home for one more year. And what's going to happen when he's gone? because my children were what kept me alive. And I was starting to have this panic and this fear that once they were gone, that was gonna be it. My reason for being here was gonna be gone. So, you know, I'm seeing the, the psychiatrist and I'm about three appointments in and I'm getting really frustrated because my personality is, you know, I'm a list person. So just tell me what to do and I'm gonna do it. 
And of course she just kept wanting to revert back to the past. And I was getting frustrated. I was like, I don't want to talk about my past. I know why I'm screwed up. I lived it. I've been living it forever. I know why. Just tell me how to fix it. And I remember saying to her, can you just tell me how you dealt with your mental health struggles? Like, what did you do to help you get better? And I watched her eyes kind of glaze over and she's like, well, Charlene, I've never personally experienced mental health struggles. Well, that was it for me. I was like, you've just sat here for like three appointments telling me that you understand how I feel. You don't understand how I feel because you can't. Unless you have sat in that dark place, you have no understanding of what it feels like to be there. So I'm thinking, how can you help me when you've never been there? And I kind of emotionally just completely checked out. I left that appointment and I was like, yeah, that's it. I'm done. I'm, I'm giving myself 30 days to get everything in order. And that's it. I'm ending my life. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of struggling. I'm tired of worrying about, you know, taking care of everybody else. That was my way of, at the time, taking care of myself was just ending the pain that I was experiencing. And it was uh, two weeks before the date that I was going to end my life that I got invited to the, the women's workshop. And the women's workshop actually was on, as I was saying, it was a Saturday, Sunday. And those were the two days before I had set to, uh, to end my life. So it was, you know, going into that workshop and hearing stories that I related to and I connected with that saved my life. So, and that set me on the path of, of doing the work that really needed to be done. So, Was it the inspiration of others or do you think it was just knowing that, well, what was it? I mean, what, what in that workshop do you think triggered you? Do you know? Uh, yeah, absolutely. It was three speakers that I heard um, the first half of the Saturday. And I, like, I will say when I walked into that workshop, I actually kind of felt sick to my stomach because I looked at that room of women and thought, wow, these ladies have it all together. Right. Because we always have this perception that everyone else has it together, but us, we're falling apart. And I just kind of, you know, I sat down, I got through the first part of the morning and none of it connected with me. It was like health and fitness and financial well being. And of course, none of that to me mattered anymore in my life. But the second half of the day started, and the first speaker was a woman who was bald and she had alopecia. And she stood on the stage and she was talking about how. She had not had any self-love, no self-worth because, you know, she didn't fit the beauty standard. You know, she had no hair. So, you know, she didn't feel worthy as a person and how she didn't love herself and how much she had struggled as a, as a young child and a young teenager. And then going on to being a young woman, you know, she had dealt with um, addiction and, and, you know, depression because of that and how the moment that she learned to love herself everything changed. And, you know, I'm sitting in my seat and I kind of hear this voice in the back of my head that says, well, what about you? And I'm thinking, yeah, what if I could have loved myself? You know, like I'm thinking that my entire life, I have relied on other people's love to validate me. You know, I was trying to make up for my parents, you know, leaving, abandoning me is what I thought at the time. So I was like, I just want someone to love me for me, you know, not for the physical body that I have, you know, the, the gratification that they're going to, I just want someone to love me for me. And it was that moment of what if that person is me, 
what if my love for myself is enough? And of course, you know, I brushed it off because I'd already made up my mind anyway. So next speaker comes out and it's a woman who's talking about living with mental health struggles and being suicidal for two decades and how it was the moment where she learned to accept mental illness as being part of her. Instead of trying to fight it and keep the dark at bay, she kind of accepted it, drew the dark in so the light should could shine into it. And again, I'm sitting in that seat and I'm kind of like, hear that voice. What about you? And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, how different would my life have been if I could learn to live with this? If I could have found healthy coping mechanisms, if I could have embraced that part of me instead of feeling shame about it and trying to fight it. And of course, I just brushed it off because I'd already made my mind up. And then the last speaker of the day comes up and it's a gentleman and he gets on stage and he starts talking about um, his failed marriage, losing custody of his kids, um, being addicted to painkillers and alcohol and being suicidal. And how for an entire year, he had tried to find a perfect mix of pain meds and alcohol so he could commit suicide, but make it look like an accidental overdose because he was in the life insurance business and he knew he had to make it look right in order to take care of his kids. And on one rare evening, his wife asked if he would take the kids overnight, which never happened. He said yes. And it was on that night that he found that perfect mix of pain meds and alcohol. And as his kids were sleeping in, you know, his apartment, he was laying on the couch knowing he was overdosing. And as he was laying there, he kind of heard a voice that said, no, not like this, not today, there's more. And he was able to get to his cell phone. He called 911 and it set him on his path to recovery. He got clean and sober. He got into therapy, got help. And now he was going around and sharing his stories in hopes of someone that needed to hear the message to hear it. And I'm sitting in that seat and I'm kind of like, what the bleep is going on right now? Like, I'm like, the, I'm not even supposed to be at this event, right? Like, I didn't want to come to this event. And, you know, like I said, at the moment, I was kind of looking for a hidden camera, even though no one knew what was going on in my life. Because I was like, this cannot be, this cannot be by accident that I'm sitting in this seat. And I have just heard three people touch on the three areas of my life that I have struggled on in the most. And I'm like, maybe I'm supposed to be here for a reason. Maybe I'm supposed to hear these messages and maybe I'm supposed to hear these messages because maybe my purpose is what they're doing. Maybe my purpose is to take all the crap that I have experienced, all the pain, the trauma, and I'm supposed to share it because other people have experienced it. And they need to know that there's hope. And I think, like I, I always say, I knew intellectually that other people had experienced, you know, the things I experienced, the domestic violence, the childhood sexualized trauma, mental health issues. I knew it. But to hear people so vulnerably sharing their stories, I felt this connection and this anchor almost as if the anchor went into, into the ground. And I, I sat in that seat and I went, no, I want to live. Like I made my decision and sitting in that seat that I was going to live and not just live. I wanted to not, you know, not just survive, which I had felt I'd been doing. I wanted to thrive. And I felt like I could take my story 
which was that whole childhood thing coming to surface of, you know, wanting to share a story. And instead of sharing other people's stories, share my own story in hopes. And I went to the organizer of the event after that day was over. And, and I said, I would love to let you know the impact this event has had on my life because I felt it was so important for her to know that that event had saved my life. And she, you know, of course, and I was like, I would love to come back next year and, and talk at your event. And she was like, absolutely. I would love to have you come back. And I did. I went back the next year and I shared my story and so much between leaving that event that day and to when I went back, my whole life had changed like 180 degrees. Like it had just completely shifted. Um, we did a little exercise on fear and I realized how much I had been allowing fear to control my life. Um, and the, the activity was uh, write down six things that scare you or intimidate you, write six things down and then roll the dice and whatever number comes up, do it. Just face your fear because once you face it, you're going to learn it's not as big and scary as you think it is. So I started doing that. I started, you know, I wrote down six things that scared me and I started doing it. I took all the poetry that I had been writing since I was a child because that was my outlet for the pain and the trauma. And I self-published a book of poetry because I thought this is my way of showing people who I really am. This is the me that I have kept hidden. And it was me being vulnerable and kind of open, opening myself up. I talk, started talking about my experiences, my mental health with people. Um, I asked you know, I had such a fear of rejection that I was like, okay, ask someone out on a date. That was my, I think the third thing on my list. And uh, cause I wanted to prove myself that if someone said no, it was okay. I was still going to be all right. I had made the decision that I was okay to be by myself. I kind of left that event going, we're okay to be alone. We, you know, we're, we love ourselves enough. We're okay to be alone, but you know, I wanted to deal with that rejection fear. And so I asked, you know, someone out on a date, brother of a good friend of mine and you know, I say at the time, unfortunately, he said yes, because he blew my whole attempt at trying to learn rejection was OK. But he said yes. And then we had our first date two months later. And then eight months after that, we got married. It was just, you know, I, I say when I left that event, I think I heard the universe take a collective sigh and say, OK, we've been waiting for you. Let's go. We got big plans. So everything started falling into place in my life. And I went back, spoke at that event. And before I got off the stage, I said, you know, my purpose in sharing my story is just to reach one person. If I can just reach one person, save one life by someone realizing that, you know, they're not alone and that they can get through it, everything that I've gone through is worth it. And I got off that stage and I was trying to beeline out of the room because I was so nervous after speaking and being so vulnerable that I had a woman who was in the audience stopped me. And she said, hey, Charlene, you know how you said you wanted to save a life? And I said, yeah. And she goes, I want you to know today you did. And she turned and walked away. And I was standing there and I get goosebumps every time I tell that story. I was standing there. And, you know, of course, I'm really quiet. And then I heard that little voice that I have become really good friends with now and learned to listen to. And it says, okay, now let's go find one more. So for me, it's just that journey to find that one more, that one more person who needs to hear that story. So 
How does that make you feel? It makes me feel good. You know, I know I give, you know, I, I tell everybody, even talking on podcasts for me is, um, it's so healing and cathartic. And the healing process is not like, okay, I've healed and that's it. One and done. To me, it's it's a, a long lifetime process, right? Growth never stops. And for me, I always say like every opportunity I get to speak is giving voice to that little child that was inside of me that didn't have a voice. So, you know, I'm empowering her to say, okay, this is, this is it. Like now is your chance to, to speak and have your, have your voice and be heard and help other people, which is what we've always, always want to, wanted to do. So um, knowing that, you know, I can save one person from a day of suffering, you know, even if it's just for a brief moment, then that's, you know, what my purpose is. That's why I am here living this life that I'm living. So it's, um, do you think that's your purpose? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, I had those stirrings as a child of, of, you know, wanting to be a story, both being a storyteller, but also, you know, helping other people. So I think the purpose was there. It just took going through all of those experiences to really bring it to light. So mm. it's, um, I don't know when you, I suppose when you look at it and you, you, you know, it's, it's, it's a hell of a journey, right? Mm-hmm. Hell of a journey. Mm-hmm. But that also puts you in a very unique position to help some special and amazing people too, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I look at, you know, I, you know, I think back to that office visit with that psychiatrist, right? You know, and her not, you know, not truly understanding. So me being able to connect with people, you know, and having people reach out after they've heard, you know, I've had quite a few people reach out after they've heard my podcasts and they're like, thank you. And I mean, I always give a message of, um, you know, if you're, you know, if someone's experiencing darkness and they don't feel like they have anyone to reach out to, uh, or they don't feel comfortable sharing with the people in their lives, that, you know, I'm, I'm always available 24 seven on, on social media. It's like, I always tell people message me on Facebook because I will come and sit virtually in the dark with anybody until they're ready to, to rise up into the light, because it's so important for me, for people to know that they're not alone and that there are people who understand, truly understand what it feels like and what, you know, what they're going through. And yes, all of our experiences are different and I may not have experienced the same trauma as someone else has necessarily experienced, but I do understand those feelings of being alone and in the dark. So for me, it's so important that people know they don't have to be there alone. It's, um, <clears throat> I had some, you know, conversation with someone recently and, and often found, you know, it's, it's especially when people are that much in the dark and it's, you know, suicides either on their mind and all the rest. And, and almost one part is is talking somebody down. You know, that's just one part of it. But the second part then is giving them a reason not to do it again. You know, and there's it's two parts, right? And it's mm-hmm. you know, and th- there's a saying which I particularly like. You know, and it is almost you know your your you know your weakness can become your strength if you learn. You know, it's like standing on the shoulders of the negative things in your life. And, you know, the first thing is to neutralize it. The second thing is to get okay with it. And then the third thing is, 
you know, to accept it and use it as your power, you know, and is that, you know, do you think now that's something that can be your power? Have you got, you know, have you been able to sort of twist the energy and, and bring the momentum to that stage in your life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've taken it and over the last, you know, like I said, six years, the the change in my life and it's, I am taking it and using it as um, a tool for good. Right. You know, and it's, it's part of it is continuing to do the work. I mean, we never stop doing the work ourselves. Um, you know, I work with a coach. I now coach women. Right. So I'm uh, just being able to, to take that and to use it for good rather than for the darkness that it was, was so based out of. And, you know, and I always tell people it's, it's a, sometimes it's a second by second journey, you know, like day to day by day. Like, you know, I hear people say, just take it day by day. Sometimes you got to just take it second by second, because when you're in that dark place, it's like, if I can just get through the next second, just get through the next second. Right. And that's where my, you know, you, your focus has to be just getting, getting through it. And then, you know, I, it, it does get easier. I know it's hard. I know when people said that to me, I was like, yeah, you don't, you know, sure it does. Cause you don't see it, but you know, from being in that darkness. And that's why, you know, we talk about the, the Phoenix behind me, like for me, the Phoenix is so symbolic of the experiences that happen for people who have experienced trauma, because I think you have to sometimes burn down to the ash. And I mean, and for me, that's where I was, I was burned down to nothing but ash. And then, you know, I went to that event and everything changed and it just allowed me to rise to rise up. And that's what I, you know, try to inspire people and let them know that you can, even if you feel like you're down in the dark, you can rise up. In hindsight and, and, you know, to, to be able to help yourself, which is also ultimately what, you know, helping others that were in that situation, you know, what's, what's the most useful thing that, you know, people may hear, listen to this podcast or, you know, what's the, what's sort of a useful advice or steps that people can actually make if they're in this sort of situation or something similar? Um, number one, reach out for help. If you're finding that you're in a really dark spot, find someone who you can talk to. And whether that's a mental health professional, if you have access to that, where you are, one thing that this fantastic pandemic that the world went through has taught me is that there are so many resources online that, you know, even if you don't have access to live, being able to go sit with someone, there's so much help available online. There's support groups. There's people who um, are experiencing the same thing you're experienced or have experienced it in the past. So reach out and get help from someone who, um, who you feel you can connect with and who you feel understands. Um, and second, for me, the most important thing I did was, as I was saying that for very first speaker that said to love yourself, um, you have to love yourself. You need to not rely on everybody else to, um, determine your worth and your value. And I mean, I ask myself on a daily practice when I'm, you know, when I'm doing things, you know, I start the day, it's like, okay, what would someone who loves themselves, what would their day look like today? What would they do? You know, if I'm looking at doing something, it's like, would someone who loves themselves do that? 
you know, so it means I usually only have a small piece of cake rather than a really big piece of cake. But um, it's just loving yourself because once you can love yourself enough, you'll set boundaries, which are so critical. And the boundaries are not just for other people. You're going to set boundaries for yourself as well on what you're willing to allow yourself to do in your life. And um, I think sometimes those boundaries are more important than what we allow other people to do. Like I have very clear boundaries in my life on who I let in, what I let in, you know, and what I, I put out into the world. I mean, it's never going to be perfect. And I think what, you know, people need to understand is society gives us this perception that we have to have it all together all the time. And I'm here to tell you that's not true. You don't have to have it together all the time. Um, it's okay to not be okay. And I gave my, and again, that's the grace I gave myself was the understanding that, you know what, Charlene, if you're having a bad day today, it's okay. Like, don't judge yourself for having a crappy day. Go through it, get through it, and let's move on from it. You know, the next day, tomorrow is always a new day, but it's like, you don't have to have it all together. And if you need to take a day, take a day. If you need to take a week, take a week. If you need to take a month, take a month, do what you need to do to be okay for you. And, but that comes from understanding that you need to love yourself and take care of yourself first. Is that, I mean, and I love that. I mean, the fact, can you categorically now say that you like yourself and you love yourself? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. What's your values now, Charlene? I think my values are the same as kind of they've shifted a little bit, but um, I've always believed in um, number one, looking after other people. For me, that's a huge value for me is um, some, we need to sometimes take our eyes off ourselves and, and look at, you know, yes, I, I take care of myself, but part of me taking care of myself is, honoring that part of me that wants to help other people. And um, so being able to be honest and transparent with the experiences that I've gone through, and even that I go through on a daily basis, um, being honest and being myself and saying, this is me, you know, if you don't like me, that's okay. You know, I don't, you know, I don't need you to like me, but you know, I need you to like yourself. Right. That's, you know, the, the message that I, I, you know, try to put across, especially the women that I work with. It's um, not everybody's going to like you. Not everybody's going to love you, you know, and just accept that. And um, I am still, you know, working hard is that one value that I've, I've learned from my grandmother that has just really stuck with me. So um, I work hard at what I do and anything I do in my life. Uh, I surround myself with people that, um, lift me up, not pull me down. I'm very selective of who I allow to come into my bubble and who I share my energy with. And um, I think that's so important because I think sometimes we need to purge toxic relationships out of our life. And it's hard for people, um, even family, you know, I've cut ties with family. If, you know, if it's not beneficial to me in my life, then I have to protect my peace at all costs. And uh, that has become, you know, my number one mission. And again, giving back and being of service 
is is important. That's why I created uh, that that workshop that I attended after I spoke at that event. She she canceled the workshop. She didn't do anymore. She was kind of burnt out from doing them. And I remember sitting the following January at a you know goal session and thinking, you know, it's really too bad that these workshops aren't happening anymore because I know the power that they can have. And um, hearing that little voice in the back of my head that said, well, what about you? And I was like, yeah, what about me? Why don't I start a workshop? So now for me, it's, you know, I host that workshop once a year and it's my way of, you know, paying tribute to the event that saved my life and, you know, giving homage to uh, the power of story and the power of connection. So just being of service is so important to me. So. It's it's so beautiful, isn't it, to sort of give back and, as you say, to be of service and and you know, to help other people. You know, yeah. what's a two part question? I mean, what are you capable of, and what's coming up for you now? What am I capable of? Whatever I set my mind to, mm. I believe that um, the only limits that we have are the limits that we place on ourselves. I mean, my goal is to one day share my story on a Tony Robbins stage. That is, that is my goal is to stand up there. And that's just stemming from my, my desire to create impact to as many people around the world as I can. And, um, you know, if I would say my goal is to impact a million lives, I would even think that that is too small of a number because, you know, I want to impact anybody who, who has ever suffered from mental health struggles or, you know, childhood trauma, I want to break the stigma of that. I want them to know that, you know, they're not alone. There's, you know, they've not done anything wrong, but they don't have to let that control their lives. So, um, yeah. What am I capable of anything? What am I doing now? Um, lots of podcasting. I've, I kind of slowed down. I was doing quite a few there at the beginning of the year, but podcasting is an amazing opportunity to get out and, and share my story and connect with other people that are um, creating impact in the world, which is so important to me because I want to, again, I talk about surrounding, you know, surrounding yourself with people who are um, change makers in the world and um, doing things of service. So for me, being able to connect, um, meet so many different people, people from Ireland I've spoke you know like I've spoken to people in Australia and the Netherlands and Germany like I think of all these you know these connections and the, all the places in the world where you know the impact is being created and um, working on planning my workshop I hold it every November so I've just started kicking off the planning for that so that'll keep me busy and I'm writing a book so that's uh, that's my I'm putting my story out on paper so Wonderful. And that's, and that's an amazing service that people can see it in different formats because some people are listeners, some people are readers, some people are watchers and, and that's yeah. what we do, right? It's just, you know, and I, I love that when we get over ourselves and we say, listen, you know, what I think about myself or what I think about the thing is, is almost nothing to do with me. It's the, mm-hmm. the, the ability to resonate with somebody else or to make it okay for somebody else to speak up or say, or do whatever. And that's, I think that's a beautiful purpose. I think that's, that's something of amazing service, you know, and, um, I was just, I was, I was looking at your website and I see you, you and Tony Robbins, you've, you've already had sort of a meeting with Tony Robbins as well. It looks awesome. Well done. Yeah, I've done, I've done it. I've been to a couple of his events 
And uh, I, I will say it's kind of funny how, um, how we manifest things. And if we talk about manifesting that event that I spoke at that workshop that I spoke at, I remember standing on the stage and holding up a vision board that I had done that previous year. And part of that was um, I had a picture of Tony Robbins and, you know, I had welcome to the Tony Robbins stage written on there because I was manifesting that I was going to get on. I was going to be a speaker on Tony Robbins stage. And then the following geez, I forget the, the next year when he came back to the area that I was in, um, I went to his event. And of course, I believe in um, investing the money to be I, I was front row. Like I, I believe proximity is power. So I want to be right up front and, and feel that energy. And so I'm up front at Tony Robbins and he's looking for someone to come on stage to do a little body language exercise with. And he points at me and says, come on stage. So I get to go up on stage with Tony Robbins and I'm doing this activity with him. And then they did a meet and greet afterwards. So I got to do a little quick photo, you know, photo with him there. And, you know, and he thanked me for coming on stage and playing all out. And I remember driving home after that event and not really thinking about it at the time, but driving home. And I was like, wait a minute, I was just on stage at a Tony Robbins event. And I was like, oh, I need to get a little more specific in my manifesting. <laughs> like, yeah, I got on stage, but I want to get on stage and talk. So now I'm a little more specific, but uh, that's how we, the power of making things happen. So Wow. That's beautiful, isn't it? It's amazing the, the opportunities that, and you say proximity is power, you know, that's what it is. It's, mm -hmm. I love that when people get so serious about their own development, about the opportunities and all the rest and saying, listen, I want to be front row, you know, mm -hmm. like that's, you know, when, when we get so dedicated and focused on ourselves, I love that, you know, mm -hmm. and that's, that's someone that loves themselves. That's someone that absolutely sort of wants the best for them. And ultimately the better you do, then the better you can help other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think investing in ourselves is so important. Um, you know, and I, I don't think people think of it that way. You know, people will go spend, you know, they'll go out to a night at the bar or the pub and they'll spend, you know, a hundred dollars going out and they don't blink an eye at that, but you ask them to spend a hundred dollars on a, a masterclass or a training. And then they're like, well, I don't know if I can afford to spend a hundred dollars. So for me, you know, I, uh, I don't blink an eye at spending, you know, spending the money. Cause to me, it's all an investment in myself. And, you know, I don't think there's any greater investment I can make than in myself. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and why not? I mean, you, you invest in yourself and it, it affects every part of your life, you know, and who you are and what you do, you know, and it's powerful, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. yeah. Tell me, I mean, what's, what's a bit of a guilty pleasure for Charlene and, and what, what does leisure and pleasure look like for you as well? Mm. Um, guilty pleasure. I like shoes. <laughs> Unfortunately for my husband, I like shoes. Wine. Are you usually in the top, <laughs> the top one? Whenever I ask that, I love that. I um, yeah. Um, other than that, I live on, um, I'm on almost six acres. I have kind of like a little, I would call it a hobby farm, but it's more of a full-time job most of the time. So, but I have, um, I have three dogs, a cat and five goats, little pygmy goats. So, um, I, ha I find no more joy than being outside and being around animals. I mean, I, um, my goal for my property is to, um, I would like to develop a trauma center. I'd like to have something set up where I can rescue 
um, rescue animals and bring them in and then provide a, a facility for children who have experienced trauma to come in and spend time with the animals. Because um, growing up as a child, I had a dog and um, that dog was probably one of my lifelines. And uh, even as, as an adult, and I try not, try not to get choked up on this part, even as an adult in some of my darkest moments, um, my dog was there and probably kept me alive. I say that the, my dog doesn't understand that he probably saved my life sometimes. So for me, understanding the power that animals have in creating healing for people is huge. Uh, and I think children being able to connect with an animal. And I know I had a lot of conversations as a child with my dog that I didn't have with adults. And uh, so being able to share their trauma with an animal is, is uh, my goal is to provide that platform. So. Wow. What, a, what an amazing privilege to do it. And also an amazing service to, to, you know, to help, you know, so it's mm -hmm. powerful. Tell me if you were to try and then describe your fire in your belly in one or two words, Charlene, what would they be? Creating impact. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I talk about ripples a lot and I don't think, um, we put ripples out into the world constantly and, uh, we never sometimes know how far the ripples go. So for me, I just want to create the biggest ripples that I can and reach the most, you know, the farthest way I can. So, but for me, it's creating impact. So, Wow. Tell us where can people reach you? Where can people learn more about you, hunt you down, stalk you, any of the above? Yeah. Um, you can find me on all the social media platforms, of course, uh, Facebook, Charlene Madden, speaker and author, uh, so Instagram, Charlene Ann Madden. My website is www.charlenemadden-speaker.com. And uh, yeah, any anywhere you want to reach out. And like I said, if you, you know, please reach out if you need someone to talk to and you don't feel like you have anybody else, please message me on Facebook. So I'm available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So, Wow. Is your final message then you'd like to leave with our listeners today? that you, you're worthy. You deserve to be, um, you deserve to be loved. You deserve to be here, you deserve to exist and you deserve to create your own ripples in this world. So, uh, just have faith and, uh, get through the next second. So, yeah. One step at a time. So it's all about yeah. Charlene. It's been absolutely beautiful having you on. Thank you so much for sharing. And, and I think it's so powerful you for your sharing and, and going through and, really being where you are today so thank you for your service and, and helping other people so well thank you for the opportunity and thank you for your platform and thank you for the healing that you are creating and the ripples you're sending out so thank you until the next time take care okay. well that was another great episode of fire in the belly you know this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys and boy boy sometimes it is personal it's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon, and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons, and successes. 
So, all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly, and be the mightiest version of you. 